Folks, do you love movies? The good ones? Even the bad ones everyone told you not to like? It sounds like Super Yaki is the place for you. The team at Super Yaki loves movies, so much so that they've dedicated every waking moment of their life to bringing you top-quality merchandise to showcase your love for them. From super soft t-shirts celebrating the 20th anniversary of the cinematic masterpiece Josie and the Pussycats, to comfy sweatshirts made for the brave members of the Movies by Yourself Club that even have pins of some of your favorite directors like Sofia Coppola and Jordan Peele. Super Yaki joyously brings you tangible love letters to movies and filmmakers that you can wear with pride. Plus, the team at Super Yaki screen prints all their apparel using eco-friendly, 100% water-based inks and ships with compostable poly mailers for an environmentally friendly alternative to online shopping. As a special gift to you, listeners can save 10% on their order with code SUPERSKYTALKERS, all caps, no spaces, at checkout. If the spirit moves you, you can find them at superyaki.com. Let's watch more movies. Anakin's descent into darkness had been talked about for decades before we saw it on screen in Revenge of the Sith. Despite knowing Anakin's fate for over 20 years, the production would see many changes from George Lucas and the topic of the dark side itself. Join us as we dive further into the Revenge of the Sith production and Anakin's transformation into Darth Vader. Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to this episode where we are following up on our Dark Side episode by talking more about the Dark Side. <laughs> there's just so much to talk about. It's never ending. It's there's a lot. It's the Dark Side, after all. I just feel like in that episode we kind of blew up the topic and got. We got into the nitty gritty. I'm not saying that, but it'll, it'll be nice, I think, in this episode to examine a single movie that was so pivotal for how we discuss and think about the dark side as a whole. I feel like so many things were in flux during the production of Revenge of the Sith, and that's why I am just really looking forward to this episode. It's also, it's also one I've wanted to do for so long. Like, this episode is what I wanted to do when we were talking about the dark side episode a long time ago and that kind of rolled into like well we can't talk about this until we talk about that yeah now we're here and thank you so much for all your kind comments related to the dark side episode it was so fun to do and is probably one of my favorite episodes we've done but if you haven't listened to that episode you can definitely listen to this one without listening to that one too but i do recommend it (laughs) spoilers (laughs) For yeah. the first, for the first part, <laughs> I think this is the the fastest follow up episode we've ever done, uh, except for our nostalgia series. But that was yeah, that was kind that was of planned. Yeah, that was more planned than this, I would say. But yeah, I'm really excited. I'm been enjoying talking about the prequels. Honestly, I feel like yes. it's been a minute. And so in that dark side, of course, I say that, but we're literally living in basically prequel era right now with Bad Batch. But just getting like in the dark side episode before getting to really talk about like Anakin and Darth Vader. And uh, it felt like it had been a while since really focusing on his character. And so I'm glad that we get to do it some more in this episode and specifically talking about Revenge of the Sith, our, our baby. Our love, Revenge of the Sith. (laughs) My first love. (laughs) Our dark, dark love, Revenge of the Sith. (laughs) Yeah, and also just a big part of why it's so fun to do these episodes is diving into our 
behind the scenes book collection library and discovering awesome George Lucas quotes that we either had read once and kind of forgot about. It's just nice to re rediscover. And I'll just say at the top that the primary source for this episode will definitely be the J.W. Rinsler Making of Revenge of the Sith book that I highly recommend if you can get a copy of it. I honestly believe it might be out of print, but there's a lot that are floating around. I got mine, I think, secondhand on Amazon, and then you can get them on eBay and things like that if you're ever interested in the behind-the-scenes nature of Revenge of the Sith, because it is great. And then also the J.W. Rinsler Art of Revenge of the Sith book, which is really similar. Like, they're basically the same. (laughs) One has more photos than the other, but yeah, they're basically really, really similar. And both those books actually were my first behind-the-scenes book I ever got when I was a Star Wars fan, and they're just amazing. I love looking at the art and thinking about the concepts, and I'm excited to talk about it now. Yeah, and uh, if you're still looking for the making of book, Charlotte actually got that for me last year or early or late 2019, so you can totally still get it, I think. Yeah, easily. yeah, it's, it's available. Yeah. It's just like I don't think you can go to Barnes & Noble and buy it, you know? Yeah, no, you can't go to your local BNN and just pick it up. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, you got to go to your local Amazon.com <laughs> or eBay.com. <laughs> I know. It's unfortunate. <laughs> it is. <laughs> or maybe like a second in Charles. I, I feel like a second in Charles could have it. That's an Atlanta or a Georgia oh, right. local Sorry. store, FYI. <laughs> like a local chain store. Second It's one of store. those. <laughs> yes. <laughs> My bad. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but I bet they have a website that you can order from. I would not be surprised. You can still probably find it. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And this episode is going to be not a three-parter, but a two-parter. And that's just because we couldn't figure out a way to make a third part. My, my Virgo so. heart is shaking that we've broken structure, but it's fine. <laughs> it's okay. It's fine. It's fine. It's good. We're good. We're good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So in our first part, we're going to be talking about the concept phase of Revenge of the Sith. And in part two, we're going to be talking about the dark side as physically corruptible. And without further ado, let's get started. So who talks first? You talk first? I talk first? Welcome to part one, where we're going to be talking about the concept phase of Revenge of the Sith. And honestly, I think we have to start with all Star Wars movies, okay? Because this is something... We haven't really talked about concept art on the podcast ever before. Am I wrong about that, Caitlin? Like, I feel like we just have never really done, like, a deep dive into it. Yeah, nothing super in-depth. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's so many misconceptions about the idea of concept art and what appears in those amazing books that come out with each new film and The Mandalorian, too, that are published by people like Amy Ratcliffe and Phil Shostak um, these days during the Disney era. And back then, it was J.W. Rinsler, generally. And I think people really think that concept art is like further down in the production timeline. And the easiest way that I can just think about it, and correct me if I'm wrong, Caitlin, is concept art is exactly what it sounds like. It is concepts that aren't necessarily going to be set in stone for the story down the line. And the way that George Lucas worked, specifically in the prequels, was, you know, he would just kind of look at awesome artwork done by the art team and be like, ah, that works. That feels Star Wars-y. Okay, maybe I can... incorporate that into my script into my rough draft Um, but maybe that doesn't work I like where we're going though that has a really good feel and he would give things stamps of approval with his fabuloso stamp (laughs) and (laughs) and and that's kind of how it was like in the sequel era 
right before it, right before it was more like three years before The Force Awakens even came out, they had this time called the Blue Sky Period. And the Blue Sky Period was when they were just sort of, or the artists that were hired were just kind of making art that would sort of create the look and feel of what we know the sequel trilogy today to be. And that's exactly how it worked out in the prequels too, because a big part of our conversation here is that George Lucas really didn't have the script or the story of Revenge of the Sith locked until like 2004. And just a reminder, the movie came out in 2005. So, Just a reminder that George Lucas is a procrastinator. It worked out. It works out. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I think so. I just feel like there is a sort of disconnect sometimes, at least in the in social media sphere about like, look at this awesome concept art. I wish they went with that. And that's true. And that wish is totally valid because you see such amazing concepts and you're like, oh, I wish they explored that. But that doesn't necessarily mean that was ever going to be part of the story itself. Like that was never really hard line set in stone. Yeah, exactly. And I think that something that sets George Lucas apart, especially um, in the early days, like with Ralph McQuarrie in the original trilogy and then throughout the the uh, prequel trilogy, too, is that the art department plays a very big role very early on in the development phase of the film. And I don't really think that that was happening in other major blockbuster franchises. I could be wrong. All I know is Star Wars, so... <laughs> Feel free to uh, let me know other examples. <laughs> but uh, from what I understand is that the one, the art department right now at Lucasfilm still kind of functions in this role, but it's kind of always creating stuff. Like you were saying that they're just kind of drawing Star Wars things. <laughs> and especially in like with Ralph McQuarrie and stuff, uh, George was just kind of looking to get a feeling for what he wanted the universe with the galaxy to look like. And so a lot of things, it's just like, oh, draw me a robot man. And then we have that image of C-3PO and like the, you know, images of Alderaan that were never really used, but Ralph McQuarrie was drawing and conceptualizing. And, and even, I can't think of their name right now, but the, um, the, the big spider, <laughs> from the Mandalorian season two that was really early Ralph McQuarrie concept art that was never used and I think that George Lucas uses concept art and the art department uh as a way of as like part of the development process um from really early conceptual stages even before like necessarily characters have been nailed down or even the whole plot of a story and I think he uses all of that together as he was working on scripts and you know Doug Chang is over the art department now right he's like super in charge of it yeah I think he's a creative executive now I think yeah he's, he's super in charge super in charge of it I don't know if he's in charge specifically in charge of that but he's basically in charge of a lot of stuff all that to say is that yes you're right Charlotte that concept art is what it is what it's called. It's concept art. It's the artists are making hundreds of drawings for any given project, um, especially now when when the art department is literally working on everything that's going on in Star Wars right now, right? Um, and all of that is used in the process of like getting that Star Wars feeling, having ideas of how characters look, even potential plot beats, or just like your wildest fantasies about what could happen in Star Wars. It could be anything and everything. And um, things that are included in things like the art of books does not necessarily mean that that was ever on the table to be an actual 
story beat or character or, or things like that. You know, it's just, it is a part of, it's all like part of the drafting to, to draw like a, a similarity to the actual script writing process. It's, it's all just mixed in there. And George, I think was really known for growing the art department in a really big way before other studios were really kind of placing that kind of importance on, on like concept art and things like that. I think it was, it was more like storyboards and then you would go to concept art. Whereas I think George is like using them all at once. Something really interesting with regards to Ralph McQuarrie is that George, I I believe, okay, this is not part of our notes, so I can't remember. I believe commissioned Ralph McQuarrie to create a series of artworks so that he could sell the movie Star Wars to studios and have them invest. I think that's true. Yeah. Yeah. And so like 20th Century Fox took one look at that like manila envelope filled with (laughs) Ralph McQuarrie stuff and was like, yes, I love the look and feel of this. And so like that spirit has been a part of Star Wars creation ever since then because it was an essence. It, we, we always talk about the Star Wars feeling, but that exploration of the Star Wars feeling has always been present in that exploration of artwork. Especially when you think about how George really views his films as images and sound over everything. Yeah. For him, that's most important. And that really uh, is emphasized in his the importance he places on the concept art team. Absolutely. And just to, I think that, I think there's so many, even when we talk about the sequel trilogy, people always love to talk about like, if only there was a plan, you know, if only there were a plan. And I feel like I've even caught myself thinking that too, but with the tradition of Star Wars, that hasn't necessarily been how it goes. You know, I think with Revenge of the Sith, we always knew that Vader would have to become like the man who was Anakin Skywalker. It has to become Darth Vader at some point. Like that was the purpose of the prequels. But George had all these ideas and some of them are present. Like when something that always kind of blew my mind was when he was talking to John Williams during the Phantom Menace uh, about doing the music for Duel of the Fates. He was like, oh, that'll come back around in the third one. It's like he was always thinking about that, but they were just not, (laughs) the plans were not fully there and things were still being really explored. Yeah, nothing was written down in pen when it comes to George. No. (laughs) I mean, maybe they were. We just, I don't know. (laughs) I I just mean that he's an editor. He is an editor, actually. So (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that's what he loves a lot is editing. But Yeah, with regards to Revenge of the Sith, like, Perhaps the only thing, like there were two things that were really set in stone about Revenge of the Sith, right? That Vader was going to become Darth Vader on a lava planet, that there was going to be a duel on the lava planet. That, for some reason, has been in cultural subconscious since like the 80s, okay? (laughs) And that's because of Ralph (laughs) McQuarrie artwork, actually, um, about the lava planet. So that was always going to be a thing. And then there was also the fact that they filmed when they were in Tunisia in 2000. Owen and baby Luke and Baru. So like they actually didn't call Bonnie Pease and um, oh, what's his name? The actor who plays Owen Lars um, back into the studio to film that last scene with Luke at the very end. And that was like the only thing that was set in stone. And <laughs> I always think that's really funny and so interesting, actually, you know, 
Yeah, it really is. I think actually this, if we're if we're kind of on this George Lucas and production tangents here at the top end, this quote from Ben Bird is actually kind of perfect to, to tie it, to kind of wrap it all up. Mm-hmm. So this quote is from the Making of Revenge of the Sith book, and it is from – we have dates in here because that's very important in the Making of the Revenge of the Sith book, uh, which is March 30th, 2004. So just about a year out from when Revenge of the Sith will air. And Ben Burt says, so I come in every day to help George figure out what he wants. Quite often we're in here for long stretches making things up, quite literally getting going along until we get stuck and then saying, now what could happen? It's like a series of brainstorming sessions. Sometimes it's like having a bored teenager in the back of the car and we're changing things just because it's stimulating for him. But George certainly doesn't hold on to material because it's sacred. He's very able to look at something and say, it's got to go, or let's try something completely different today. His approach is also very close to how someone would do an animated movie. I call it recomposing the movie. You're free to split apart the visual elements without a shot, the people, the objects, the setting, and rearrange them. We put in a shoulder, raise an arm, take out a blink. This is the process we do every day. There isn't a shot or scene or moment that doesn't that isn't deeply affected by the process. And there isn't a day in the editing room where we don't discover something interesting through that process. And I think that, I think some people hear that quote and are probably like, that's the problem. (laughs) But I think this, and this is something you and I have always kind of said about George Lucas and for whatever your feelings are about the prequel trilogy is that you understand that there is there's always a reason behind why a certain choice was made when it comes to the prequels and especially Revenge of the Sith. And so I think that's so I think it's actually quite interesting knowing just how long George was mulling over this this character, this franchise, literally decades. And even up until the last minute, he's still putting in 100 percent of is this the best way to tell the story that I'm trying to tell now? Um, even for something that he's like the, what you were saying, the the only thing we know for sure is that he's he's fallen to the dark side. <laughs> but even that is given the most attention to detail through every little detail. Um, and I think that I think that is part of what makes George such a fascinating filmmaker to study, honestly. Totally. I can never get enough. And I I just feel like even looking upon the production of Revenge of the Sith with new eyes after witnessing the production, not that I ever witnessed it, right? It's not like I was actually there, but, you know, <laughs> witnessing the sequel era and um, just kind of seeing how that was all put together. And in a lot of ways, people talk about how it was rushed, you know? Yeah. And so, and I don't know whether I agree or disagree with that. I wasn't there. I don't know, you know, but it seems like some filmmakers who worked on the on those movies sometimes think that they were rushed. And I actually think that the people who work on the prequels probably thought that they were rushed as well. And I think that's so interesting to me (laughs) to think about that because one had actually one more year to work on it than the others. But anyway, I just to kind of tack on to that, I want to read this quote from J.W. Rinsler where he sort of muses on the creation of this film. He says, From the audience point of view, the movies of the Star Wars prequel trilogy may seem to have a leisurely schedule, with three years to create each film. The reality is that each movie is enormously complicated. Not only does Lucas push people and technology to their limits and beyond, but his schooling in the 1960s at USC as an avant-garde documentary filmmaker editor means he he makes his films in an unusual manner. 
Most filmmakers shoot a specific number of pieces and then turn them over to an editor with instructions on how to put them together. Lucas gathers material as, a, as would a documentarian, creating a massive crate filled with tons of pieces. Without instructions, he slowly sorts through them and assembles them with his editors, constantly revising, adding, and taking away as he goes. I find this so interesting because who does that remind you of, Caitlin? Uh, well, I was going to say that it's like Star Wars is a big piece of Ikea furniture and you just throw out the instructions <laughs> and put it together. Yeah. <laughs> this quote, honestly, I, I found myself thinking about J.J. Abrams. Exactly. Exactly. It's the same. Yeah. And I think that's like sometimes I think people look at and in, including myself, I'm like calling myself out here. Okay. <laughs> look at people like JJ Abrams and think, oh my gosh, like he just, he overfilms. That was, that's kind of like the, and he allows his actors to like explore yeah. certain scenes and things. And on, from my perspective, I'm like, oh, that means he doesn't understand the tone of his film. He doesn't know what's going on. But if you think about it through the lens of what George Lucas thinks about it as, it's like you have all, you're, you're going to create a bunch of different reels. You're going to, overproduce and then you can kind of splice it all together and find the real heart of your movie and that's exactly what happened with revenge of the sith and i don't think it happens for every movie but it's an interesting creative process and one that i would probably think works well for some people you know yeah i think it's i think it's such an interesting comparison because they're both effectively doing the same thing but I, I also think that the difference is in the purpose behind why they're getting all yeah. of these shots. Because for George Lucas, he's someone who says the film is created in the editor's realm. I have I don't know, but I've never heard J.J. Abrams say something like that. And mm -hmm. so I think that the the point of view from that day and set is very different between those two directors. And, and, and in here, I'm really just talking about the comparison between revenge of the Sith and the rise of Skywalker, obviously both final chapters um, and both have incredibly difficult things to accomplish in their respective films. But, um, mm -hmm. and, and perhaps this is just a result of the sequel trilogy having different directors, even though it was only two, but with George, it like it's a George Lucas movie. You can tell it's George's work. It there's a continuity through all three films, and obviously, you and I think that the Rise of Skywalker stands out in the sequel trilogy. It has really good parts to it, but overall, it, it stands out. And while I look at something like this with George as kind of a strength of his, I don't know if I view it like that for JJ in the context of Star Wars. Um, to be honest, I haven't studied his work as extensively or, or with as much analysis as I give something like Star Wars, but I know people have their opinions, good and bad, on his other work and other franchises. But I think I, I do think it's such an interesting comparison because, yeah, like I said, I do see it as a strength of George's of um, making sure he has that coverage. But I also think that George, like he knew the tone of his film. It was just which piece creates that tone the best. And I don't know if I would say. I don't say, know if I agree with that. I, I don't know if I, I think agree with I. That. I think I do. I think I. I obviously agree with that. I said it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think he does. I think George knows the. I think things can change on set, but I think George has a very clear vision. Um, and I don't know if I would say the same for JJ in regards to the rise of Skywalker. I just push back upon that because I'm not sure George even knew the center of the film was Anakin until midway through the production, actually close to the end of it. And um, 
I think that what the major success of Revenge of the Sith is, is the focus on Anakin and the tragedy behind that. And it took him a little bit to get to that. And he he did. But what you seem to be saying is that he like understood that from the beginning. And I'm not sure if he fully did. I think he I think he did. But I think it's easy to get lost like in the grandness of filming and like everything that you're having to think about like there was one uh part in this book where it's when he adds the opera that you know palpatine and anakin have that conversation uh do you ever know the tragedy of darth Plagueis the wise um and he's he's talking about he's like we've never really talked about eyeshadow in star wars like really talked about it but he's thinking about like all the opera guests right and he's like the people are asking him like what kind of makeup should they wear (laughs) he's like i I don't know. <laughs> but I, I think that I disagree with that. I think that George was well aware that Anakin is the center of of this story and especially of Revenge of the Sith. I think how he gets there ultimately, he probably cha- – well, he clearly changes his mind a lot throughout production as the best way to say it. But I think he always believes or knows that Anakin is the the crux here. Yeah, yeah, and he's the problem to solve too. Yeah, for yeah, him. yeah, exactly, and that's yeah, and part of him is solving the problem, but he knows what the problem is. Yeah, I, I guess that's true. I don't know. I just feel like my general understanding is that this movie was actually a lot more unfocused than some might believe it is, and like I, I just I don't know. I don't know. And obviously, I think I'm a bigger fan of George Lucas's work than I am of J.J. Abrams. So like that also taints my perspective on things as well. So yeah. anyway, I just like want to refocus back to Revenge of the Sith and talk about how in Christmas 2002, this is what George Lucas said about writing Revenge of the Sith. Um, so just again, to set the scene, it's Christmas 2002. And I don't think Attack of the Clones has come out on VHS and DVD quite yet. It has been in theaters since for like six months so longer than that i don't know what is time eight months <laughs> may june seven months okay okay okay. that was close enough all right <laughs> okay so this is what he says he says back in august i started writing this but the script starts to have its own life characters start to start to tell you what to do and you end up with problems by the third film, you have a lot of characters left over from before, and they're all running around yipping and yelling and saying, what about me? And you have to solve these problems because what you thought what was going to happen isn't happening. I've got far enough with the outline to realize that the bridge between episode three and episode four still had them about 50 feet apart. So I had so I had to dissemble episode three and rethink it and make it line up with episode four. When you actually put it down on paper and start doing it scene by scene, when you really start pulling it apart... You say, well, I have a through line. Now I have to stick with it. I find this really also interesting because <laughs> I think that one of, another famous George Lucas quote that actually comes from this time period is, quote, continuity is for wimps. And comp- continuity on George Lucas's end, and I think that some people nowadays with the emphasis on canon might like recoil at that, but I think it's really funny, actually. <laughs> but... <laughs> I think what's important to George actually is like, how do you get from point A to point B with episode three and episode four in a logical sense, not necessarily a continuity sense, you know? And of course, in order to finish the final chapter of the Star Wars saga at this point, 
you ha- would have to like blow everything up in order to s- realize what the piece is, what it's really about and what you're really going towards. And I feel like this is just a problem of ending. It's so hard to end things because you have so many characters. And the, the fact of the matter is that some characters just get left behind and they're just going to have to be discussed and talked about in other forms of media or never at all. It, it's only whatever serves the the final beat of the story. Yeah, I think this quote is really fascinating because it also reminds me of Rise of Skywalker and its production and that infamous quote from Chris Terrio saying, what number did he say? Like 28 characters to wrap up whose storylines we conclude yeah. and wrap up in Rise of Skywalker. And and yeah, it's like, it's, I actually don't mean that as a slight against Chris Terrio, like that this is, ending a story is incredibly it's just so hard. hard. And in some ways, Revenge of the Sith benefits from having the middle chapter just behind it and the the next chapter right after it in that like it's ending, but it's also not. And like with all the characters, right? Like for George in this time period, it's like looking at all the pieces, right? And deciding how they best fit together in order to get from Revenge of the Sith to a new hole. But even if that means some of the pieces have to be left out. And the the nice thing about Star Wars, which he knew I to <sighs> This is the thing about George Lucas, right? It's always the question of how much did he know? How much does he care? Like, what? what is his – what is he? He's like this enigma of nonchalance that sometimes seems like he could care less about everything going on. And then, you know, he comes out with all of the knowledge in the world and you're like, oh – I don't know. George Lucas is such a fascinating person in general. And daily, I find my headcanons about him shifting. <laughs> so true. Same. Yeah. Yeah. But the, like, looking at the thing about Star Wars that I do think George knew to a certain extent at this time is that there's nothing is ever put away. Nothing is ever locked away, I guess I should say, with Star Wars. And that is, that goes back to the concept art discussion, too. Nothing ever gets thrown away in Lucasfilm and Bill Shostak has the archives of all of concept art to prove it like nothing gets thrown away and this goes for characters too that even if they cannot be a part of the the chain from Attack of the Clones Revenge of the Sith to A New Hope in the biggest way that they might have been in and like episode one or two that story is not locked away there's always possibility for new stories for them and Around this time, George is starting to think about the Clone Wars series. Mm -hmm. So I think that is – I would bet that that is also in his head right now too. It's probably just not something he's ready to talk about right now in 2002, you know? Yeah, it's true. I mean, they were already beginning to explore it with the Clone Wars micro series. But even from there – Yeah, even from there, I think that – George, because that's another thing that's happening right now at this time period. Like they're exploring other mediums, which they hadn't before, you know, at least within the prequel structure. And I think George really dipped his toes in that and was like, oh my God, like that's the next generation for in terms of like my sort of storytelling avenue. And that's what happens, obviously, after Revenge of the Sith, we explore the Clone Wars and the 3D action series. Yeah, where George gets to talk a lot more about Anakin. Yeah, not just Anakin, but all these other characters that he had that 
are yipping and yelling and saying, <laughs> what about me? <laughs> you know, who, who of the Jedi Council is yipping and yelling the most? <laughs> I think uh, everyone is yipping and yelling except for Anakin. I'm going to be real. <laughs> I just feel like this whole thing is so stressful. I can't even imagine what it would be like to end a, a series that has been decades in the making. I would say that it's Kayani Mundy. Kayani Mundy and uh, Yarl Poof. I think they are yelling the most. I think they're also best friends and they um, have a lot of petty lunches where they would be like, we just never get any time. They always send us on the worst missions. (laughs) True. And Yarl Poof is like, I had to go get all that pizza and then Order 66 happened. And Robot Chicken reference. Yeah. And Kayani Mundy as a force ghost because he clearly died in Order 66 is like, stop complaining. (laughs) Anyway, it's been a while since a robot chicken reference, but that is a great sketch. So A classic. (laughs) A classic. Basically, all the Jedi Council hates Yerl Poof and they send him to go get pizza and he's like so frustrated about it and he comes back and Order 66 has happened and he's just holding this whole stack of pizzas like... Oh, <laughs> he's like anyway. guys. Guys, anyone? <laughs> I, my favorite part is when he's he's like long head pokes back in and he goes, "Yaddle, can I borrow your car or your speeder?" <laughs> and Yaddle is like, "Oh, it's in the shop." And he's like, mm. he like gets so mad. <laughs> it's not in the shop either. That's the. <laughs> oh yeah, that's the yeah. thing. <laughs> She's. <laughs> anyway, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Okay, to put us back on track, a big reason for wanting to do this episode was this sort of small bit in Star Wars prequel lore. And it's a website called, um, it's a really long name, but the website is is basically called The Secret History of Star Wars. And it's one fan sort of conjecture and assimilation of quotes from a bunch of different sources, including J.W. Rinsler's making of the revenge of the sith and honestly some of it borders on like conspiracy and like i said conjecture but honestly i find it really interesting and as a compiled understanding of something i think that it's worth a look and a in worth a discussion at least on this podcast so this was written or this website for all i can tell was copywritten in 2008 And the mood of the internet at this time was very much like, how can we examine the prequels and the Star Wars saga as a whole upon understanding the fact that now it is complete? And how can we look upon it with new eyes? And also, how can we fix it? Um, And (laughs) I I feel like so many people got kind of sucked into this um, mindset, including myself in some parts, of like, okay, how would the prequel trilogy be different if... Number one, Anakin was older, or if things were just different, right? Or if we actually started episode one was actually episode two. Like, how would things be different, right? So I just wanted to put that out into the ether because, like, in I'm sure you remember this, right, Caitlin? Like, from like 2006 to 2009, that was like the internet, that was YouTube. (laughs) Do you remember one of the first like viral Star Wars videos I saw before? I I think it's actually later, but the belated media. What if, yeah, that's what I was going to bring up. Yeah, what if, what did he start with episode one? He was like, what if episode one was good? Yeah, and that was like one of the biggest viral videos ever. I'm sure most people listening to this this episode have listened to that or watched that. And I don't really agree with it at all, basically, anymore. It's so interesting, but I found it 
a fascinating dive way back then. Yes, compelling is the accurate word. And in the same way, I find this compelling, and obviously I'll link to all this, but basically it talks about how Revenge of the Sith was compiled in the editing room. And that is actually quite true, right, when you hear the quotes and everything. And it talks about how the concept of the dark side was not fully defined until the editing room. And I find this all so crazy and fascinating. And personally, I even think the like undefined nature of Anakin's turn until the editing room, I feel like that creeps into a little bit of the Revenge of the Sith novelization because that was being written at the same time of filming and yeah. everything, right? So yeah. And like all the reshoots that came out of it and everything. I just find it all really interesting. We're going to dive into it. But I just wanted to kind of start by talking about the secret history of Star Wars. And there's a whole book. And that the whole book kind of talks more about the Star Wars, like six films as a whole. But I'm more interested in Revenge of the Sith of it all. <laughs> because I feel like it does get a little bit more conjecture-y um, in, the, in the novel. Um, but yeah. So I always find these sort of like fandom board deep dives really interesting. I think it's so crazy how people could like find all of this information because I was barely on YouTube, you know. (laughs) But yeah, I think that time, like what feels like kind of the Wild West of the Internet of, yeah, people trying to piece it together and make this argument for and against the films. And then, of course, like, our experience watching, you know, like as many fan vids as we did, which were basically doing the same thing, just in a visual format of a video of compiling all the films together, putting things that matched or having it character focused, like they're all doing the same thing. And whereas something like a fan video is doing it more through story and visuals, something like the secret history of Star Wars is doing it through like production, but we're all talking about the same thing. It's the fandom is just such a, a fascinating thing, right? Totally. So to kind of wrap up this section before we dive into part two, I think uh, this just kind of sums up the craziness of Revenge of the Sith itself and the prequels in general, I think, as we careen towards the dark middle chapter of Revenge of the Sith. Uh, and this is from Faye David. And she says, we're out of our minds making a movie where the bad guys win and everyone dies is not destined to be the most successful movie of all time. I love this. Right. (laughs) I know that some people feel a sort of melancholy about Revenge of the Sith, that it's like too emotional or something like that. But just kind of want to resurface again that Revenge of the Sith is like the movie that made me a Star Wars fan. And it's because of those tragic elements. And I totally understand why it's not everyone's favorite. But um, I, I think it's so interesting, this idea, this like, trudging towards this concept that is so tragic and like a quote like this where the bad guys win and everyone dies it also like reminds me of Rogue One in a weird way right about like it's so bold to create a movie that is sad and so often during this process whenever you read any of these prequel um, or original trilogy like behind the scenes nature with George Lucas talking about like the inevitability of like creating this movie and how much he, you know, feels so destined to make the movie. And I don't know, I just feel like I'm so glad that they did make it. And I'm so glad that it was George Lucas's like own vision that really came out on screen for 
all of those, those six films. Yeah, especially when you compare Revenge of the Sith and Return of the Jedi. The, the ending totally. completely different in tone, right? <laughs> and it, it's it's bold to to make all the prequel trilogy, honestly. So. Absolutely. Okay, let's move on to part two. Welcome to part two, where we're going to be discussing the dark side as physically corruptible and the sort of development of the dark side during Revenge of the Sith. So as I mentioned in the last part, I want to talk a little bit more about the secret history of Star Wars. Um, again, I just want to stress, this is just one fan's idea that I think is worth discussing. <laughs> okay, with a, with a website that is still intact. Yeah. And like so many of the links on the website, which is so such a bummer. It's such a bummer are expired because some of the things I'm like, oh, I want to explore that. Uh, and I don't think that it's even in the Wayback Machine. Anyway, so... <laughs> um, I wanted to start by reading part of said conjecture about Revenge of the Sith. Caitlin, would you mind reading this? Yeah. And again, this is from the Secret History of Star Wars website. The turn, as originally written and filmed, played out in a drastically different manner than what is seen in the final film. The original conception of Anakin's turn was that the dark side was slowly turning and corrupting his mind, like some kind of drug or virus. Anakin's massacre of the Tusken Raiders was initially a pivotal point, in many other ways as well as we see later, because it gave him his first taste of this awesome power, and slowly but surely he would be drawn back to it. Thus, when Anakin struck down Mace, or Dooku in the original conception, it was the consummation of a journey that began in Episode 2. This is why the Emperor was sure Luke would fall in Return of the Jedi if he killed Vader out of hate. Once you had tasted its power, it would be so irresistible that you would inevitably be drawn back to it, and slowly it would consume you, twisting your mind. If you once start down the dark path, forever will it dominate your destiny, consume you at will, as it did Obi-Wan's apprentice, Yoda intones in Empire Strikes Back. The Emperor had been so consumed in mind that it had even corrupted his flesh. But just as this aspect would be revised, so too would the psychological aspect, but it would occur, it would occur after the movie had been filmed. As Lucas has also said, most bad people act on good faith, and here Anakin truly believed in the actions he was taking, that they were ultimately for a greater good, another aspect to be altered in the final cut. So what do we think about this? I think the idea that the dark side was being defined in the editing process is really interesting, and how does this affect our understanding of how George developed the dark side in inevitably Anakin's turn? I think what this quote kind of gets at, I think, is is also tracking George Lucas's understanding of the dark side and the conclusion that I think he ultimately comes to and really emphasizes throughout, particularly the Clone Wars, that the light side is selflessness and the dark side is selfishness and that it is all about that personal choice. I think that we do see Anakin get this taste of power in episode two, but he recoils from it. It's only when he makes the selfish choice to say Padme that he truly falls, that he succumbs to the dark side. And I think that it's ultimately more tragic how it plays out now because it, in a way, it feels like there is more free will 
in it and more corruption like from Palpatine and manipulation. But there's also the element of Anakin himself too, right? And I, I think that it becomes more complicated when we actually look at how it is in Revenge of the Sith and, and throughout Star Wars as opposed to simply like just a virus or just a taste of power. Like just power, the want for power, the need for it, or I should say the want for power is can be, I think, kind of trite, kind of boring. It's very mustache twirling. But as soon as you put something like true love in it and um, feeling misunderstood by those around you, feeling slighted by those around you, that's when you start to build a more compelling villain, a more compelling character, especially one that will eventually be redeemed. Yeah. I think something that's so interesting about this thought process that is put forth by The Secret History of Star Wars is that the quote that we examined and really kind of put to the test in our last episode about the dark side, the whole Yoda quote about the dark side forever dominating your destiny, and we sort of argued that that can't be true because of free will. To me, this <laughs> this means that George also is on the same path of how do I make that make sense? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and like how do I, um, okay, so do I have the dark side be something that is corrupting someone's old own soul and being to the point where it's like physically consuming you. And it makes me think of the Revenge of the Sith novelization with the idea of the dragon consuming you from within, like the flame sort of taking, taking you over. And like that sort of fire breathing dragon within you is like uncontrollable. It's always there. And like once you kind of um, acknowledge it, then it sort of spreads everywhere, almost like a virus or a disease. And I, I think, or a drug even. And I think that there's something so interesting about that concept that I don't think was necessarily explored at all in the film. Like we get that sort of background from the novelization, which technically isn't even canon, by the way. And I think that there's this thread that you can follow of George being like, okay, so how do I make that make sense? Okay, so I guess now Yoda could be wrong and proven wrong by Luke himself in Return of the Jedi. And to me, that's what makes Star Wars so interesting is that like when there's all these different pieces that are the way that you kind of like consume it, everything, the way that you kind of view things completely changes. It's the whole like Rashomon effect even. I, I don't know. I've thought about this so much. <laughs> I feel like yeah. um, the whole idea of like something fully corrupting you is just... Like, I wonder what Revenge of the Sith would have looked like had Anakin gotten a taste of something and then that sort of like took over his entire body. And even I wonder if like that was sort of the idea, if if we are to kind of take this at face value, if that was the idea, then for me, it like sort of makes sense the whole idea of Palpatine's face even getting corrupted, right? Yeah. After using the lightning. I think we sort of view that scene now as like, yeah, that's what happens when like lightning is deflected on you. Like that makes sense. Okay. <laughs> but I don't think that was necessarily um, decided when that was happening. I think it was like, okay, so now the dark side is out and that is his true form. That is Sidious. And we even had someone recently in our Discord, our Patreon Discord, bring this up with regard to the Revenge of the Sith novelization about how Palpatine in the book, I don't have it in front of me, but in the book, Palpatine is like so happy to reveal his true self of Darth Sidious, like physically. And I think that like uh, sort of exposure of his physicality is like really interesting 
um, once the dark side is out. Like he, he can like, <laughs> I don't know. It's just, it's so, it's so weird to me to like consider if this was ever even a concept of like, once you are on the dark side, like it takes over you like completely. And maybe that's even explored with the yellow eye concept too. Like once you've gotten yeah. that taste, like it takes over your whole body. And yeah. I don't know. I feel like we don't really talk about the yellow eye thing enough because it really hasn't been brought back in like new canon that much like ben solo never had yellow eyes and like that was a whole thing because he wasn't a sith but oh my gosh i <laughs> it's like a little much the yellow eyes <laughs> but I, I don't know it's like it's so interesting though to consider like if during the process it was like no like the dark side it takes you over like physically and i think we can even talk about how in some pieces of concept art, again, just want to remind people that concept art is not doesn't mean that it was ever going to be developed, but it was just being talked about, right? There's a there's some concept art of Padme when she's pregnant and she goes to Yoda for help. And uh, I'm just oh, yeah. going to read this quote. It's from 2002. Okay, so if we're tracking the like between 2002 and 2004 of the developmental process. Um, Ian McKay exhibits two key frames. One shows Padme doubled down in pain, seeking Yoda's help. Quote, Padme has the force flowing through her, McCaig says. She has even more midi-chlorians than any person has ever had because she's pregnant with the Skywalker twins. So I was wondering if we if we will see her suffer, end quote. Although Lucas is enthusiastic, neither of these moments will make the final cut. And th- there's also a scene um, that is in, in the art of Revenge of the Sith where Padme is um, engulfed in flames in, in Mustafar in Anakin's dreams. And, like, I think that both of these things are sort of related. This whole idea that, like, is the Force evil? Like, I don't know. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts? I think it is um, incredibly complicated. And it's, like, the more you... Yes, it is. The more you drill down into, like, even, like, one character, like Anakin, specifically in something like Revenge of the Sith, the more convoluted and hard to talk about it becomes. And so I think even, like... even like physically making the movie it's like oh i can understand all of this flip flop of concept and feeling and actual shots that george was going through but i kind of wanted to go back just a little bit to anakin or that that quote from the secret history of star wars and about like the the virus the addiction of it all like being it consuming yeah. you and enjoying that addiction because i was thinking and i was like well, I, I don't think we actively see, like, in in Attack of the Clones, right, after Anakin kills the Tuscans, um, he is distraught about it. And we have that scene with Padme. He's like, I did it. But he's, like, so angry at himself and the situation and, and all of it wrapped in one of losing his mother, of being in this strange place and, and of what he actually did. And then even after he becomes Vader, you know, when we see him with the younglings, he's got the tear and um, with Padme and, and all of that. But then but then we have these quotes from Hayden, which one of the great things about the making of Revenge of the Sith is I feel like you get a lot of Hayden content in it and hearing Again. him talk about the character of Anakin. And Charlotte's like, yes, please, more. <laughs> you said that you were like, yes. <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's just like, yes, thank you. I can't wait for more. Please more. Oh my God. Right. Uh, Yeah. Reading these, I was like, (laughs) wow, he's he's back. 
He's back. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But the Hayden talking about Anakin's turn to the dark side, I find really interesting in conjunction with this. Is the dark side a virus? Is it selfishness, selflessness, personal choice, um, a mistake? All, All of that conversation, right? And our with the making of Star Wars, we're like, no, it's not a virus. It's not an addiction. But then you have these quotes, which I think kind of lean more towards that size side. And um, in this first scene, Anna, uh, Hayden is talking about uh, Anakin and Padme's confrontation on Mustafar, the last time they see each other. And Hayden says, this is from uh, August 6, 2003. So Revenge of the Sith is filming at this point. And uh, Hayden says, Anakin's just gone and killed his family, more or less. So I've done a deed that I thought would have weighed on me. But George sees it as an outburst of almost accidental anger that Anakin then has to suffer the repercussions of for the rest of his life. Anakin thinks he's done the right thing in killing all the Jedi. So George wanted me to come to the scene with enthusiasm. Things are good. I'm the most powerful man in the universe, and I'm going to be able to save Padme. And I I don't actually think I've really ever read this quote before, and it matches the scene in Revenge of the Sith so perfectly. And I think it's interesting that word, like, enthusiasm, because we do really view Anakin as such a tragic character and for a lot of his life afterwards as Vader, there is, there's no enthusiasm. Like I never think of as Vader as excited to do what he's doing. You know, it's like he has to, and yes, he's making the wrong choice time and time again, but I never, I think you actually had the best uh, metaphor for it in the original dark side episode with Scrooge and the chains and, and that Anakin, for every chain he takes off, he's still building, like, adding two more chains behind mm-hmm. him. And it's, mm-hmm. like, this push-pull that he can never escape from himself until Luke comes along. But this quote about it's an accidental anger that Anakin has to suffer the repercussions of for the rest of this life. But in this moment, he wanted me to come into the scene with enthusiasm. I think it's such a fascinating way to describe everything that's happened in the past like two hours to Anakin at that point in the film. And, but it, it makes sense too, because like, this is the moment it's like, it's all worth it. Padme is here. She's alive. I did the right thing. And then it's all gone in an instant. As soon as that jealousy, which I do think is part, it's like that heightened emotional sense of the dark side within him when he starts to suspect Padme and Obi-Wan And, you know, everything unravels from there. And this other quote, too, that I honestly should have read first because chronologically it comes first um, is from also from Hayden about Anakin and Palpatine and is from July 17th, 2003. So just about a couple weeks before the Padme quote. And Hayden says, Anakin's relationship with Palpatine eclipses his relationship with Obi-Wan, but he doesn't really have a clear devotion to one or the other. Anakin, as he will be played, is... I don't want to say naive, but his belief system is still open. He still isn't exactly set in his devotion to the Jedi or to Palpatine. He's looking to see how he can get more power, but his ideas of good and evil are not black and white. I just, what, what do you think? I don't know what I think. Um, I think that it's pretty clear to me that some things just like were not fully decided about Anakin's final turn. And I just want to emphasize or mention because I haven't mentioned that a fair amount of reshoots were done towards the end of the production yeah. that ha- that are normal for a movie but the reshoots that happened in 2004 um 
for Revenge of the Sith are like pivotal scenes. Like we're talking like Mace and Palpatine, Anakin yeah. turning to the dark side. Um, the and a lot of even that like henceforth you will be known as Darth Vader stuff was created in the editing room from scenes that were like filmed multiple times and personally i feel like as someone who's seen the movie like four jillion times i can say that you can tell due to like the wigs and like the hair and it just looks a little different sometimes padme's hair well yeah padme's hair is yeah that's a reshoot that one like to me makes a little bit more sense about why they would insert that to have like a scene of reprieve before the nightmare and then also i just want to bring up that even that second nightmare so there's the the first of like padme screaming that was created um that was like already in this in the script but the second one with obi-wan was created in the editing room from more shots that were done during the actual birth scene and it's interesting to me because that specific nightmare isn't even that abrupt but it just kind of cues the audience that anakin cannot close his eyes without seeing this image and then also add to the jealousy that he could potentially feel towards obi uh towards obi-wan and padme if that was a relationship that i don't know was explored a little bit more in revenge of the sith um yeah it's like a triangle situation as anakin's own jealousy rears its head when obi-wan uh finds himself on the skiff of padme's um ship on mustafar anyway i just like kind of wanted to say that because with these quotes it's like so much was being explored but even that final piece wasn't fully decided (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah i think that's important to note because right this this is summer 2003 and This is how Hayden's being told to play Anakin in this moment. And it's kind of different than like George is telling him something different than what he what his first instinct was to do. Right. And so already you're seeing these kind of like differences in opinion or differences in approach. And then the Mm -hmm. fact, like you said, that there are still really, really important scenes that are going to be reshot you know, almost, I don't remember the date exactly, but almost a year later. Like, that's a good chunk of time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just even to the idea of enthusiasm, that is a weird word to kind of, (laughs) I think Anakin's like, in that moment, I think he's like, I got it all figured out. You know, he's fully, if you think about the dark side as something that is corrupting him, like even physically, then perhaps that's even part of it. He's like, I got it all figured out. And like, there's no going back like this yeah. is it i feel like even when anakin and padme see each other after order 66 on the landing outside of her apartment anakin looks so creepy well there's <laughs> the this, right word there's almost this like enthusiasm crazed like a little craze crazed a yeah. little manic like he's not quite there but he almost is yeah. And I have always that, that whole scene has like really put me off in a, like that's what it's supposed to do, obviously, like a lot. I'm always like, oh, man, I think it's really cool that Hayden was considering bringing that enthusiasm. And, you know, so I think a lot about how, you know, Hayden Christensen has been so maligned so often about his acting or whatever. But the reason why he was hired is because of his dark side ability, <laughs> yeah. the ability to be the bad boy. And The moment that changes in Revenge of the Sith, you see exactly why Hayden Christensen was hired. I mean, I love Hayden. It's no secret. But I think that it it really he's like playing at his strengths here. Right. 
that's just an aside about Hayden's acting. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a it's a good aside. And kind of just to stay on the the Hayden train of this whole conversation of Vader and Anakin, there was this really interesting exchange about the moment that the helmet goes down on Vader. George and Hayden have this back and forth about are his eyes open, are his eyes closed? Let's do a couple each way. What's the best way? And again, Hayden asks George, the one with my eyes open, would you say I'm really unhappy with what's going on? And George says, no, you don't really know what's happened to you. And then later, after a couple takes, George says, Hayden, I'd like to try one where you keep your eyes open and then open them real wide just as the mask comes down. And that's, of course, the shot we get in the final cut. But that again, it's just like, Hayden's like, am I unhappy? You know, and before he was like, did this weigh on me? Uh, Am I sad? And George is like, no, enthusiasm. No, you don't know what's happening. And then we also have that quote from Hayden that is like, Anakin isn't naive, but he's still open. He still doesn't really know what like his definition of good and bad is not what the audience would see. Because, of course, he's got this one track mind of the selfish choice with Padme and their marriage. So interesting because to me it's clear. I think when you talk about the dark side, there's always this sort of separation of self about um, like you've lost yourself into the dark side, right? Like you're not the person I knew, you know, you're not the man I love like Anakin and Padme. Right. And the fact that George gives the instruction of, you, he doesn't even know what's happening. To me, it even leads some more credence to this idea of the dark side taking over your sense of being. And it does sort of bring to mind the free will conversation a little bit. I think I want to emphasize also that I think what they ended up with in Revenge of the Sith as a movie and the way that we talk about the dark side today is the best choice because it does emphasize the free will aspect and the fact that it is your choice and that choice can always be corrected. Um, But you can make bad choices that lead you on a bad path. But the idea that like Anakin slash Vader in this moment is sort of unclear about what is even happening to him is fascinating to me because to me that's I think that there's an idea of like yeah he doesn't know what's happening to him because he's probably been being operated on he's like out of it because he lost a bunch of limbs like he's he's been through it right (laughs) (laughs) yeah he's super out of it so like there's that aspect too but if I wanted to look a little deeper which I do (laughs) then (laughs) then there's just wearing off that's all it is well well, there's no anesthesia in on the dark side it's pain it's just constant pain and I think that's that's important for me to say because I feel like that is very clear that every time Anakin or Vader is poked and prodded on the op- operating table, it is like disc- it's it's terrible, right? It yeah. is distressing, and he would be out of it because there has to be this sort of separation of like the ability to endure that. From George's perspective, I still think he's sort of tinkering through how the dark side even works, and he's like, well, he do- he doesn't know what's happening to him until maybe this crystal clear moment where a helmet is lowering onto him and he's like, oh my gosh, what did I, what happened? What did I even do? What is happening to me? Yeah. It's this moment of realization coming together. Um, It's such a great moment in the film. Like I I kind of can't 
stress the importance of that moment enough because how you interpret it, I think, is kind of how you see Anakin inherently as a character. And for me, how I interpret that scene, it's like it kind of goes along with both of these these things from George of you don't really know what's happened to you. And then also um, Anakin has to suffer the repercussions of his choices for the rest of his life. Like in that moment, for me, I I don't see Anakin. I don't see the dark side as the virus, as the addiction in that moment. In this moment when the helmet comes down and his eyes widen, that's when I see Anakin. And it's Anakin's this dawning on him of, oh, it's the italicized O of, (laughs) wow. Um, And then after he's entombed, basically, is when he finds out about Padme. And for me, it's such a tragic moment that of when that helmet comes down. But I think it would be, I think you still can look at it the other way of, oh, it begins uh, mm-hmm. of the helmet coming down and of Vader coming out. And I actually think I meant to bring this up at some point earlier in the show, but I think it works really well here, actually, is something you and I talked about last episode on the dark side that I kind of have kept rolling around in my head of how we how we call this character. Like our mm-hmm. first instinct is to call him Anakin. Other people's first instinct is to call him Vader. And that not that that says a lot about you, but I think that says a lot about how you approach the character. And I think that this is a moment. It's like, are you in this moment, are you seeing the death of Anakin or are you seeing like we finally arrived at Vader? And I think there's yes. a difference. Yeah. And I think another thing that George Lucas was perhaps tinkering with throughout the production of Revenge of the Sith is how do you make Anakin the most sympathetic and tragic character? And is it, do you have him, just to like add on to, do you call him Anakin? Do you call him Vader? Like, I don't know. To me, yeah. it doesn't even matter. I say Anakin just because I feel like I have more familiarity with the character of Anakin than I do Vader in this weird way. And I, yeah, but I think. Through George's sympathetic telling yes, of him. Exactly. And I think this whole, like, how do we parse this out? Okay. So if you think about the dark side being a virus or a drug or something like that, right? There's inherently something sympathetic about that because that separates someone's own free will and they're just being taken over by something. And you're like, please stop. It's a similar way that we think about even like crosshair or the inhibitor chip with the clones in the Bad Batch um, or just the clones in general with Order 66. We still have sympathy because they can't control it. Right. And I think that's the same thing here with this idea of like the dark side is a virus. But if we consider the flip side, right, of what we get in Revenge of the Sith of Anakin's own choices and the, his environment, right, we talk about that in our last episode, make him into Darth Vader. Both of those are really sympathetic because, and but one is more tragic. And that is the the confrontation that you can, you can, you, everyone has this dark side within them. And if you just, I don't know, it's, it's like, it's so complicated, but I think this like confrontation of like, that can happen to anyone. I know fiction is a heightened reality, of course, but this exploration of like, you, you can fall down the wrong path and it's up to you to figure out a, a way out. I think that that is also really sympathetic too. It's really interesting. Yeah, and if you want a way out too, and that yeah. is part of the whole selfless, selfish, where how many chains are you building and are you 
are you building and how many are you taking away at the same yeah. time? And I think, I think if we, I think Anakin, we talked about how there's a lot of more explana- exploration of Vader as a tragic figure throughout the comics. And I think there are different periods in probably someone like Anakin's life, Vader's life of building the chains and taking them away. And I think that perhaps in this period of the comics that the comics explore, some of it is him trying to take those chains away. But then it's almost like, again, like using the like addiction metaphor, even though I don't know if I completely like that metaphor necessarily for the dark side. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure I do either. I I think that it's a hard subject to discuss, you know, and one that I don't think I have the right vocabulary to do that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because I think that right on his like quest for Padme, it it feels sad, right? <laughs> but then you compare it with something like um his confrontation with Ahsoka later on in Rebels, and that feels sad too, but from Vader, it there's not sadness with Vader. There's anger when we see Vader in that moment. But then when we contrast that with the moment at the end of Clone Wars Season 7 with Ahsoka's lightsabers, I view that moment sad as like a sad tone, right? I don't... And and like it, this is all this is all supposed to be this way, right? Like <laughs> it's supposed to have this fluctuation. And I think I I find myself in the past couple minutes like thinking about Kylo and Ben and how all of this relates to him because I think you and I talked about for years that you know the dark the conversation with the dark side was building off of everything that has happened here in Revenge of the Sith and also throughout the Clone Wars and and even Rebels and stuff like that. And um, it is like there's what we thought and still is there this more nuanced discussion of the dark side and the light side kind of honing in more on that personal choice that I do think we kind of see George wrestling and exploring here in the making of revenge of the Sith. And I think that is further explored in the sequel trilogy too. Yeah, totally. Just to wrap it up, I wanted to read this quote from George Lucas talking about where he landed with revenge of the Sith. He says, It's basically Faust in the end. This is the one where you make the pact with the devil. That usually leads to the same end. You cannot change the inevitable. If you try, you're basically going against the cosmos or whoever you want to define that. What do you think about that quote, Caitlin? In some ways, it sums everything up. In others, it's almost like an easy way out of just the the vernacular that I think we're very used to of making a pact with the devil when I think that George actually has a much more nuanced line of thinking about all of this even and as we've been a perfect example of it's hard to talk about but then of course you know that that piece of you cannot change the inevitable this is where it's all been leading the inevitability of it all the anake of it all anake anake (laughs) if you weren't around anake is actually a greek like a minor greek god that means inevitable and uh, Charlotte found this out last year, the year before. I don't know. Um, but and I, were, was there a direct connection between Star Wars? No, or, I think um, it was just a happy coincidence that it's like, oh. It's a happy coincidence. Someone asked, so a listener asked Matt Martin for us, and Matt Martin didn't know. Oh, yeah. But that doesn't mean that it's not true. Yeah. <laughs> and either way, it's very uh, fortuitous if it is a co- that it is a coincidence as far as we know. I think this quote sums up kind of 
George's brain almost. It's like all these thoughts swirl together to make this thing that is kind of instantly this phrase that is instantly recognizable by us of you made a pact with the devil, but is also encompassing the start the story of Anakin Skywalker of you cannot change the inevitable. And when he says, if you try, you're basically going against the cosmos or however you want to define that. For me, immediately, I'm like, oh, he's thinking about Mortis. <laughs> but to me, like the fact that he added that at the end, the co- the cosmos, the cosmic, the living force, terms we talk too much about sometimes. Um, I think that this, like having that kind of bookend it on or tacked onto the end of this statement, it's like, oh yeah, he's thinking about, and he always has been, but specifically going against the cosmos. What is the cosmos in the galaxy? Yes, it's the force. We all already know that, but what is it? Yeah. I mean, Ray even asked that question and Ryan yeah. Johnson sort of gives it. his own answer. And I think it's great, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, I think that's constantly the question that needs to be asked actually by every creator of Star Wars. And I don't think that it's why we're having this conversation right now is because it was perhaps defined in Revenge of the Sith for this specific set of parameters, but it needs to be defined every single time you approach a new Star Wars story. Yeah. And I think that that's something that. I need to keep in mind more often. <laughs> like you were talking about canon continuity, right? And there's been some changes to canon continuity. And um, I'm definitely the person, well, sometimes it bothers me and sometimes it doesn't. It depends on the character, right? Um, but I think with something as crazy as the force, you're right. Like it does need to be redefined, not completely redefined, but uh, reapproached with new stories, especially new like with something as as major as the sequel trilogy and I reckon even what will I gather what we'll even see with the acolyte you know and how the force will be explored there and there was this great interview from Leslie Headland that you had sent me earlier this week that kind of made the rounds where she talks a lot about her approach to Star Wars and it is a very malleable which I think is great Uh, I think it's really cool. And if you haven't read the article, it's really excellent. It's really long. And Leslie talks a lot about her fandom experience, her relationship to Star Wars, how it's changed, how it's improved, things she didn't like and then changed her mind on later down, how fandom has impacted her. It's just really great. And um, anyway, all of that to say is it like that quote kind of made me think about what will the approach to the Force be in in something like the Acolyte. And even I was watching just before this, um, Dave Filoni <laughs> talking about <laughs> Mortis. And he he says, um, it's from the, the season three DVD of The Clone Wars. And he says, you'll notice that there's not a commentary or feature, a long feature on Mortis. It's just like this two minute thing. He's like, that's absolutely intentional. He's like, I've thought of all the answers to the questions that the audience probably has. But if I talk about it it takes something away from you um and i think that i think that that's really important and sometimes uh, i know i can lose sight of that and wanting things to be nailed down and defined for me and i think that this episode kind of going on a monologue here but this episode that we're talking about seeing all these fluctuations and conversation and changes and different approaches and weird terms like enthusiasm <laughs> and naivete and, and all of that being thrown around about something as serious as the dark side it is all about approach and we we're very fortunate to have someone like george lucas with kind of this like a singular vision in a lot of ways um, in his approach 
that even though it was singular, it was constantly changing. And so, of course, now that we're in this new era of Star Wars with, you know, dozens of storytellers, these approaches are going to differ. And that's reality. And it's great. Like both sides of this, of having someone like George and his singular approach, and then, you know, like dozens of writers and authors and illustrators and filmmakers and TV writers and stuff like that. That's also great. And it's, as they say, the big sandbox in the galaxy far, far away. (laughs) And, um, how you're how you're approaching something as serious as the dark side and I'm gonna take a breath <laughs> take a good breath that was great <laughs> I agree <laughs> speaking of changes and things that were happening and having to remain fluid I think that this is a really good time to talk about how things kind of came together in the editing room through these quotes so in 2004 George Lucas said the first script I wrote had stories for everybody, and I cut it I cut it down, and we had a script. But when we cut it together, there were still problems. Finally, I said, okay, let's be even more hard-nosed here and take out every scene that doesn't have anything to do with Anakin. But that causes you to juxtapo- juxtapose certain scenes that you were never contemplating juxtaposing before. And then these scenes take on different qualities than before because the scenes were never meant to be next to each other. In one case, there was supposed to be a scene with Padme and Bail Organa between two Anakin scenes because we were following her story along with his. And when most of these scenes were cut out, suddenly all sorts of weird things started to happen that weren't intended in the script. But in some cases, it actually worked so much better. What happens then is some themes grab hold of each other and really strengthen themselves in ways that are fascinating. You pull you pull things together and suddenly a theme is drawn out because it's three consecutive scenes instead of just one. Suddenly one theme is infinitely stronger than it was before, so we'll strengthen that theme because it seems more poetic. The problem was that the final confrontation between Mace and Palpatine wasn't specific enough in terms of Anakin, so we're working to make his story, his conflict, sharper. I have what I call two sharp right turns in the movie, and they're very hard to deal with. For the audience, it's a real jerk, because you're going along and then someone yanks you in a different direction. Anakin turning to the dark side and killing Palpatine is a very hard right, because we're dealing with things that aren't so obvious. The audience knows Anakin is going to turn to the dark side, but the things that he's struggling with are so subtle that it may be hard for people to understand why his obsession to hold on to Padme is so strong. It's coming together, but the only scene I hadn't thought enough about is the scene we're reshooting today, and this was the day that the scene that they were reshooting was Mason Palpatine's confrontation in the office. So speaking to previous conversations about how things were not fully defined and how things had to go through like basically a funnel of like we started with big ideas in in terms of why Anakin is turning to the dark side, and then you start taking out pieces, as George mentions, and it becomes pretty clear that this is what we needed to hone in on and why we needed to focus that. And just to kind of reiterate what I was saying before, that's why scenes like Anakin talking about how love has blinded him or Anakin and Padme talking about how love has blinded him are added into the final cut and how things are pretty um, brought to like a pointed end with the Anakin turning to the dark side scene with Mace. And all of that was filmed in 2004. Yeah. You know, this whole kind of, quote that you read reminds me of it reminds me of that uh star wars game where you have to put the scenes in order and i feel so hard it's so hard (laughs) and i feel like that was george like on the floor with like little screen caps of every single scene going all right (laughs) like (laughs) moving things around (laughs) to see what worked best yeah i think that um it's 
it's really fascinating thinking about like what George is doing here. He's basically doing a machete order, but on the small mm-hmm. scale of the film, right? And it's like once you start putting things next to each other in a way that they weren't originally, it's like, oh, this is strengthening what I'm trying to say or this weakens what I was trying to say. And okay, how do I solve whatever that next problem is? And in a way, it also highlights, like he was saying, of um, sometimes these things are too subtle for the audience and they like only exist in in George's head in kind of capital letters, but that doesn't necessarily convey on screen. So it's like, okay, how can I, what, what are we going to do now? And it's part of like that scene with Padme. It's uh, rethinking and reshooting about the Mason Palpatine confrontation because it wasn't what it should be in order to tell the story correctly. A big critique that a lot of people have of Friends of the Sith is like the lack of Padme. And it's like, well, her story was there, but then the story has to focus on Anakin. Yeah. And I would say, and I've always maintained this. I love those seeds of rebellion scenes. I think they're great. I think George was really attached to them. They literally finished them. <laughs> but I f- have always maintained that it was the right choice to take them out because they did slow down the point. And there's there's part of Revenge of the Sith, and I, I can't give you the minute mark, but where no. it all really starts <laughs> where it all really starts to make sense. Like I think it's like hour 20 minutes in, you know, <laughs> where you really and i think it's 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 part of like the padme's rumination scene it's like everything is really coming together in that moment and you're like okay i see what's gonna happen don't do it don't do it but then he does it and i feel like none of those scenes would have worked the same way if those deleted scenes were included in just doesn't work narratively and it doesn't work dramatically yeah, I think that one of the big critiques that a lot of people have in Revenge of the Sith is the that like that storyline is dropped, like you were saying. But here, when you like hear George's reasoning through it, is that you have to make it about like pretty much just about Anakin, or else thing like the whole the whole downfall gets kind of fuzzy in that. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, I love I love those scenes too, and like of course I want more Padme and you know, that more women in Star Wars always needed. Totally. <laughs> but when you go through this reasoning, it kind of, it, it makes sense. And that's what I was saying earlier too. It's like for every, or what Ben Burt actually said, Ben Burt said, there isn't a shot or a scene or a moment that isn't deeply affected by this process. And that's like in the editing room and the final putting together. And I think that's so important when you're, when you're talking about George Lucas as a filmmaker. And I think that's clear through these quotes here and even the moment you're talking about like with Padme's ruminations how it all kind of comes together like it really hits its its stride as we're coming to the climax of the film of the saga of the trilogy uh, and if you had had these kind of other scenes interspersed in it it really it really would have slowed it down and also like when I think of that from that moment on because you're right there is like this very kind of subtle shift in everything from that moment on. For me, this is when Revenge of the Sith becomes the most operatic mm-hmm. and grandiose mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, but also like small scale. I, that's like a, such a bad way to describe it, but it's I, it's small <laughs> scale because it's character driven. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I, that's when Star Wars is the strongest is when it can really focus in on the characters and their own struggles. Yeah, exactly. And I think that there that moment 
yeah, with Padme's ruminations, where it does become so visual, so musical, so kind of like drenched in emotion with the colors and everything, especially Padme's ruminations. And it all comes together. And to have had something like more formal of like Padme and Bale talking about the seeds of the rebellion, it's like, yeah, that story is great, but it totally would have taken you out of it. Mm -hmm. It does. And I think that I'm just really thankful for this sort of refinery process that happened to like make it pretty clear that the story isn't just Faustian. It's not just making a deal with the devil. It is a tragedy that can happen to anyone when under the, <laughs> the right circumstances. And I think that by George, just to sort of like sum it all up, honestly, by George even refining the dark side from something that you have no free will to what we understand the dark side as today as like a, a, a the result of poor choices. Um, I think that's it was necessary. And I think it makes the, the saga as a whole way stronger. Yeah, I think that, yeah, it's, it is simplistic to say that it's just making a deal with the devil, right? I think it's mm -hmm. more like losing your path and yes. you find yourself at the devil and no way out of the maze. Mm -hmm. And that's the only way out. And you still sign the piece of paper. That's still you who did it. But you you were also led there. You even mentioning the word maze is interesting because I think there's something really labyrinthian about Anakin's own fall to the dark side that actually came to be because of the way the movie is edited. So there's, you know, I, I talked about Padme's ruminations and so did you, but I think things that happened before then from Anakin not being on the on the council to Palpatine then spying and then the Jedi asking him to spy and then Padme placing some seeds of doubt into Anakin's mind and then him questioning his loyalties to his dream. All of those are him getting deeper and deeper into the maze, into the labyrinth. And how does one even crawl out? And with things pieced in between, it doesn't work. It doesn't feel like a step-by-step -step process. A long time ago, it's been so long, but David Collins talked about Revenge of the Sith and the music in Revenge of the Sith and how there's one scene, I think it's with I think it's with Obi-Wan and, and Padme when Obi-Wan goes to speak to Padme about where Anakin is, where the music is almost labyrinthian in nature of the way that it just keeps cascading downward, 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 like a downward mm -hmm. spiral almost. And I think we don't talk enough about music on this, on this show just because I personally feel like I don't have the <laughs> like the degree to be able to do it. But <laughs> that's always stuck with me. And I feel like that really does underscore this whole idea of a maze is escapable, right? Like you can find your way out. But, yeah, but how long are you lost? Exactly. That feels really good. That feels like a good <laughs> like a good ending. It does feel like a good ending. I mean, I feel like we've talked about that a lot and we didn't even really talk about like what changed with Anakin and Darth Sidious like a lot of things were were changed from that initial rough draft in 2002 until what, yeah. the movie that we saw in 2005 as well including Palpatine revealing that he influenced the midi-chlorians to create life in Anakin <laughs> that was removed past the rough draft that's not even a thing but I I find it interesting that George was even toying with that idea and there was just a lot of things that were left on the floor of the concept phase that 
are just absolutely, and that's the purpose of this episode, absolutely fascinating to dive into in in terms of like Georgia's psyche. Yeah. Uh, When we were talking, I found myself thinking that I think you and I talk more about word choice in a pod in podcasts than any other podcast I know. know. (laughs) (laughs) Like, let's spend 10 minutes talking about the meaning and the connotation of the word enthusiasm as it relates to someone specifically who has just fallen to the dark side. (laughs) (laughs) It's worth it, though. It's worth it to examine these kind of things. Like, that's what you get when like 50% of the podcast is an English major. Okay. Yeah. Words matter. <laughs> yeah. I, I was, uh, it made me think too of our, um, Charlotte and I did an episode a couple years ago all about the crawls in mm-hmm. Star Wars. I actually really like that episode. And it is just talking about word choice. <laughs> it's so good, though. That's one of my favorites. Good. And yeah. it is one of our lowest downloaded episodes. I know. I feel like it's it's the underdog of deep cut sky talkers. You know, like hands are a language is the deepest cut, but it's got the widest reach. Uh, yeah. the, the crawl episode is like low reach deep cut. low re- low reach what's funny is i think even our lightsaber color theory episode is more well known than the crawl episode and i wouldn't expect that honestly i know <laughs> i think they're actually two episodes apart too by the way yeah they are because i i think also the crawl episode was like right before thanksgiving so i think a lot of people yeah. too were like with family and that's why hands are language and lightsaber color theory i feel like come up a lot about us uh but the crawl episode is was actually super fun to do and right up our alley with like the english major of it all and the word choice and really diving into all of that so if you haven't listened to that episode and you want to hear more about us talk about specific word choice (laughs) that would be the one to do it Anyway, to get back to the dark side, um, yeah, I think that I think us kind of building this almost vocabulary within our own conversations with each other and like here on the show of um, it's almost like which metaphor to talk about the dark side is the best for each type of story. And like looking at Anakin through many different stories is really cool because like in our first episode on this, right, like the chains was a really like one that I think we landed on at the end of being really good um, as a way to talk about the dark side and Anakin. And now here talking about him and Revenge of the Sith, the like the maze nature of it also feels really appropriate and really um, like it matches Anakin's story really well in Revenge of the Sith. And then of course, like way back when talking about the barometer of the dark side and all of that in certain characters. And I think, yeah, I think having this kind of, uh, vocabulary and vernacular about talking about this topic that is in a lot of ways impossible to talk about is really fun and good. <laughs> I agree. It is really fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that is going to wrap up this episode all about the dark side and Revenge of the Sith and Anakin and George Lucas and all of us here together. (laughs) I hope you guys enjoyed it. Please let us know what you think um, and what your thoughts are about the dark side and how it's represented and I don't know, any cool metaphors you use to talk about it in Star Wars. We would love to hear. You can find us on Twitter at SkyTalkersPod or our personal handles. Charlotte's is at Clarity and mine is at Caitlin Plesher. And also, we have to wish Charlotte an early birthday. Your birthday is this week. So happy early yes, birthday. Sir. Talking about Thank Revenge you. of the Sith. Appropriate. Yay. I was thinking about that earlier. And I was like, this, yes. <laughs> yes. I used to watch Revenge of the Sith every year on my birthday. So, oh, man. It's Feels perfect. Good. Feels good. Yeah. <laughs> it does. 
Anyway, you can you can continue to wish Charlotte a happy early birthday or happy birthday or happy belated birthday whenever you're listening to this um, and talk to us online. Uh, I already said our Twitter handles, but we also have our website, skytalkers.com, our TikTok and Instagram. Um, Charlotte was actually editing our last Bad Batch episode live on TikTok a couple of days ago. So some people got an early sneak peek <laughs> to the episode and you got to see more of the behind the scenes of how Charlotte puts together our shows, which is really cool. So I'm sure she's going to do that again in the future. So you can head on over to our TikTok if you're interested in that and our other fun videos. Um, but if you haven't left us a review yet on iTunes, you you could do that. That's a thing you could do. And we would really appreciate it. It helps other people find our show. And if you're interested in other ways to support us and ways to get involved on our Discord and in the Sky Talkers community, you can head on over to our Patreon and check out our reward tiers there. Yes, and I want to say a huge thank you to these patrons, Jackson, Mike, Alex, B, Bailey, Becca, Brandon, Froppy, Fifi, Eric, Emma, Dylan, Diana, Joey, John, Jonathan, Katie, and Kelly. Thank you so much for supporting us. Your support means the world. Yes, thank you guys so much. And as always, until next time, may the force be with you. May the force be with you. Mm-hmm.